Well, have you ever had someone come up to you and ask the question, uh, do you want the good news or the bad news first? How many of you get excited when somebody says that, right? Yeah. I'm one of those people that I respond with something, you know, like, uh, why don't you give me the good news and just save the bad news for yourself? The reason we do this, I think, is that we innately know that to understand the good news, you need to understand why it is good news. And sometimes to do that, the best way to understand the good news in its fullness is that you need to see the context of the bad. And this is true in a giant way when it comes to Scripture, when it comes to all of the Old Testament almost being painted as the bad uh, with a hope in the future of the good, and Jesus being that good news. If you can catch the stark contrast between the darkness of the bad and the light of the good, the light, I believe, will motivate you in a way that will change your life. You will be motivated by the good news. As we've walked through Ephesians, we have seen that uh, what could be referred to as Paul's statements of what makes a healthy church. I don't think he would have said it that way, but as you read the book of Ephesians, you understand that he is lining out one of the foremost understandings of what it is to be a Christian and what it is to walk as a church full of Christians. And so the idea that we're talking about, being motivated by the good news, by the gospel, I think that this could be very much a mark of what it is to be a healthy church. So since we took a short break over the last month and did a a separate series on membership and and, uh, covenant, let's refresh the marks of a healthy church that we have covered so far. The first thing that we see, you guys remember the first mark? Let's see if you remember all the way back. First mark is Jesus at the core. Number two, we talked about, anybody remember? An attitude of thanksgiving. An attitude of thanksgiving. Jesus at the core and an attitude of thanksgiving. And what we're going to start today and cover for the next few weeks is that the healthy church is motivated by the gospel. Motivated by the gospel. We saw these first two marks throughout chapter 1 as Paul painted the summary picture of all that God the Father has done and through his anointed and beloved son Jesus. Now look with me again, we just read through part of it, but look with me again at chapter 1, and we're going to start partway through a sentence in verse 20. I want to just refresh the end of this section. The works, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. These statements are all kingdom statements. Rule, authority, power, dominion, name above names, under his feet. We discussed this in detail back in December that a victorious king would step on the neck of his vanquished foes, just as Jesus has done to the spiritual powers that rebelled against him. For us to understand the section we're about to step into, we must understand the cultural perspective of kingdoms and warfare that is, quite honestly, in 2018, largely foreign to us. So let's take a few minutes and refresh this idea. Remember that the Old Testament was framed very heavily with this idea of kingdoms and warfare. In Genesis chapter 1, you don't need to go much further than just the beginning. In the garden, God created Adam and Eve as image bearers of himself. Let's take a read here. Genesis 1.26. 
Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. This, in connection with a number of other texts in Genesis 1 and 2, speak to the fact that Adam and Eve were to be image bearers of the triune God. They were to be a picture of who he was. Now, that word dominion and the later word used, subdue, are both uh, words that are kingdom words. These people were to be sub-rulers under God's ultimate rule. And in so doing, show all of creation who God is. They did this by being image bearers. That word image there in the original Hebrew writing is the word tselem. Everybody say tselem. It's not Salem, it's tselem, T-S-E-L-E-M. I'd like to say it was Salem, but that's a different word, okay? Selem, which elsewhere is translated idols or statues. Adam and Eve were to be life-driven statues reminding creation of our creator. In the ancient Near East, kings were viewed as the image of God on earth. As far back as you go, as far back as history can take us, this was the case. Now, this could likely stem from the origins of the idea of Adam being the image of God on earth. And so kings would set up entire religions around worship of themselves rather than the true creator God. In so doing, they would say, well, I'm the image, so why don't you just worship me? And to remind people of their domain and who those people worship, they would set up statues or idols of themselves throughout the region. Uh, This kind of weird-looking guy here is Nero, who did a lot of damage to the Christians. But there were Statues of every Caesar set up throughout Rome because they wanted them to know who their king and thus their God was. This is part of why God commands us not to make or worship idols. It actually is twisting and perverting God's design that we are the image bearers. We are the idols that point to him. And to worship an idol is to actually flip things on their head because we're making God in our own image rather than his. He already made an idol. We don't need to work on it. Unfortunately, mankind continued to propagate this very broken system, and kingdoms arose, worshiping false gods backed by demonic spirits. And Israel eventually became enslaved in the earthly kingdom known as Egypt that had its own pantheon of gods. And so the Exodus story in the Old Testament is a war between the creator, the true creator, and the false religious system of man. That is why each of the plagues was actually an attack on a god of the Egyptian pantheon of gods. You ever wonder why, like, why why were the plagues the plagues, you know? Why weren't there different plagues, you know? It's because they targeted individual gods that the Egyptians worshipped in order to show that they were powerless. And so this is why the exodus of the Old Testament is parallel with the cross in the New Testament. It's the greatest event of the Old Testament just as the cross is the greatest event of the New Testament and really of history is because both are acts of warfare. Turn with me to Moses' worship song in Exodus 15, and you'll see what I mean. Go from Ephesians all the way back to Exodus 15, and we're just going to read a bit of it with this perspective of kingdoms and warfare. And just for the sake of time, let's just start in verse 4 there. Uh, Excuse me, verse 3. The slide is incorrect. Verse 3. Look at what it says there. It says, the Lord is a man of war. And remember, anytime you see the Lord in all caps, uh, it is actually the Tetragrammaton, which is the name of God. We pronounce it as Yahweh or Jehovah, okay? Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. 
Pharaoh's chariots and his host, okay? And remember, host wasn't like hosting a party, a cocktail party, right? Host was a, uh, a group of warriors. Pharaoh's, chariot, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Yahweh, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Yahweh, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. And the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. That sounds pretty New Testament, doesn't it? You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble, pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Notice that these are all enemies of Israel, the kingdom of Israel. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are all still as stone. Till your people, O Yahweh, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Yahweh, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Yahweh, which your hands have established. Yahweh will reign forever and ever. This is all kingdom and warfare language, is it not? And today we need this understanding to fully appreciate and apply all that Paul is going to speak to us in Ephesians. Why don't you go back there with me? And we take this idea of warfare and triumph with us back into Ephesians. Because the cross is absolutely, absolutely, guys, where God paid the penalty for our sins to keep us from God's wrath and, and his justice. But it is certainly that, and not less than that, but it's also at the same time a statement of kingdom and warfare and triumph, as we will see. So let's take a look now, beginning again back in Ephesians 1.22. And just to emphasize the continuation of thought, I'm going to read it from 1.22 on through chapter 2 as if there is no chapter break, because there was not in the original Greek. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Let's unpack this a bit. And what we're going to see is we're going to see the bad news that Paul is trying to paint before he fills the entire rest of the letter with the good news. You can write this down. This is what Paul's doing here. First, we see Paul's announcement of the kingdom of darkness. Paul's announcement of the kingdom of darkness. The Greek word for the gospel or the good news is the word in the Greek there, euangelion. Everybody say it, euangelion. 
Okay? And it means good news. We've, in our English language, translated it into a word called the gospel. The stem for this word, the, the uh, piece that um, it gets built off of, is another word in Greek called euangelizo, and it means to announce good news. It's the announcing of the good news that's actually the core of the good news. And so when we look at this and we understand this, it's where we get the word evangelize. To evangelize is to announce the good news. Now, the reason this was such a known and understood word for Paul uh, and all of his readers was that it was first used by the Hellenists and the Romans of the day to describe messengers that they sent throughout the Roman Empire to announce the enthronement of a new emperor, a new Caesar, a new king. Because their hope was, was that by evangelizing, people would buy into what that king was doing and they would bring about peace. You guys may have heard the term Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. That was the whole point of evangelizing, was to get people to act within the kingdom. And so Paul is saying something really offensive anytime he talks about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you guys to understand that. It is absolute warfare language every time he talks about the beautiful, glorious, good news of the King Jesus Christ and his enthronement. He's literally saying to the ruling class, the Roman public, the religious system, and even the Caesar himself, there is a new king in town, and my allegiance is to them. And so in all his preaching, Paul is innately setting up a picture of two kingdoms. And once you grasp this, the New Testament will blow open for you, and you will understand it in ways you never have before. Before he can get to the description and announcement of the new kingdom, the kingdom of light, Paul must help us first recognize the kingdom of darkness that exists all around us, but we're often unable to see because we're so engrossed in it. You ever boiled a lobster or a crab? The key is, is to throw them in the water and turn it up slowly because they never realize that they're even in boiling water. It's the same thing for us. We're in the midst of the kingdom of darkness, not realizing that we're called to be part of a different kingdom. So let's break this down a bit. First, Paul says here, and you were, and you were. Remember that he is talking to Christians within the city of Ephesus when he addresses this. These are not just any old self-proclaimed Christians. This was written sometime around the beginning of the 60s AD when Christianity and Judaism were very tightly connected and there was tons of persecution, tons of running the Jews and the Christians out of cities. And so people who were Christians during this time were not just apathetic people who were part of a subculture. They were serious about following Jesus Christ. And so he doesn't have to guess that these people are serious about their faith. He's writing with some assurance that those that read this were indeed converted Christians. And so Paul says, you were. Well, you were what? Well, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This would, have had, this would have been a little bit interesting, right? All these living Ephesians are kind of looking at themselves, and they're like, what? What, did, what do you mean I was dead? Well, the reality of what he's talking about here is the theological perspective of what's called total depravity. Everybody say that, total depravity. I like the phrase pervasive depravity better because it means that every part of us is overcome with depravity and rebellion against God. This is the fact that mankind within itself is completely sinful and fallen. 
We have no ability within ourselves to resuscitate our spiritually dead selves. Where's Victor? You're EMT, right? Do you run on the scene and you see somebody who's just had a heart attack and go, okay, go resuscitate yourself. How well would that work? Not very well. He just shook his head. There'd be a lawsuit in place, right? Because if you're dead, you cannot resuscitate yourself. Paul is saying that we are spiritually dead before we know Christ. We have no ability to resuscitate. And so look at the end of chapter 2, verse 3 there, where Paul adds within the same run-on sentence that we were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It was our very nature to rebel against God and his law and rule so much so that it's like just as natural as to breathe. That's why I always wonder when people are like, well, yeah, you know, I just innately do what's good. I'm like, really? Man, you are way better than I am, right? Because we innately want to do what's selfish, what drives our kingdom, not his kingdom. And so this made us offspring of wrath or punishment. Every man and woman born from Adam on deserves God's unending punishment because of our rebellion against him. It is this original sin of our first father, Adam, that is within us and passed down in the lineage of mankind. Well, what does Paul mean to be a child of wrath? Well, Paul uses another phrase. After he says that we're dead in sin, he uses another phrase just before that to describe what the citizen of this kingdom looks like. Look at the end of verse 2 there. He calls them the sons of disobedience. And in the Greek, you always spoke in the masculine to encapsulate the whole population. So I made it kids of disobedience up on the screen there. We are kids of disobedience, boys and girls, men and women. And notice that Paul says that there is a spirit at work within the sons of disobedience. It seems to me that to have a right view of the Spirit of God, the person of the Holy Spirit, we must also understand the opposite of the Holy Spirit, the spirit that's at work in the sons and daughters of disobedience. This really helps us when we come to the question as Christians of whether or not the Spirit of God is present and active in our lives, present and active in our relationships, in our churches. Well, what will be the sign? Well, the evidence right there is that if you're walking in the spirit of the kingdom of darkness, you're walking in disobedience. If you are walking in the spirit of the kingdom of light, you're growing in ever-increasing measure in what it is to be an obedient Christian to the commands of Christ. Now that right there, man, I could probably stop and that would bring conviction to most of us in this room. But Paul says something else that is very important to understand and I think he drives this home because it is almost impossible to get someone to understand what it is to just simply be a human. To be a human is you innately are dead in sin, walking in disobedience, but there's a couple more things. What drives you and what rules you? What drives you is worldliness, passions of the flesh, desires of body, desires of mind, really just selfishness. And the person, the the being that rules over you is what's called the prince of the power of the air. Paul says this because it's so important for us to understand what obedience means. It's not simply getting a moral rule book of certain behaviors and checking the boxes. Okay, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't go with girls that do. I'm good, right? No, that's why the world thinks 
that what makes a Christian is not cursing, not drinking, not watching R-rated movies, listening to Caleb. That's what they think makes a Christian. But this theology in and of itself is worldly. It is a system by which we are trying to earn our own righteousness by being good enough for God, not realizing that the whole point is that he reached out to us and brought us into relationship when we weren't good enough for God. We were, in fact, his enemies. Look at how Paul defines a son of disobedience. The beginning of the chapter, he says, the following the course of this world. Now, it's a really curious phrase in the Greek because in order to understand what that means, you have to attach it to the ruler. It would take me forever to get into the grammatical structure of it. But the reality is, is you don't understand what the course of this world is unless you also have the piece of the sentence that says, following the prince of the power of the air. Guys, in other words, if you are part of this worldly system, you are a worshiper and follower of Satan himself. Oh, Hans, that's way too potent. Don't ever call someone who's not a Christian a Satan worshiper. Guys, that's what is so hard to get people to understand. You always follow a king who is your king. The world does not want to hear that because we think, well, if they're Satanists, they're Satan worshipers. No, guys, Hasatan in the Hebrew means the adversary of God. It means the enemy of God. And if you are not in the kingdom of God, then you are an enemy of the kingdom of God. And the good news is that while we were yet enemies, Christ in his graciousness reached out to us and said, I want to bring you into the kingdom of light. We know who the prince of the power of the air is because it's spoken of throughout the New Testament. Here are two places. First, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 is where it says, in their case, the God of this world, speaking of Hasatan, Satan himself, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, excuse me, gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Jesus himself says in John 12, 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. See, this age that we live in, not just the 1900s, 2000s, right, but the age from Jesus onward is an age in which the prince of the power of the air rules this world. And if we get too comfortable in it, then we become followers of him. And what is the rule by which he operates? Well, it's rebellion and selfishness, unrighteousness, injustice, disobedience. This is what Paul means by the fact that those who are within this kingdom live by following him. They live by the passions of our flesh, the desires of our body and mind, just like the rest of mankind. Paul is not saying that God-given bodily desires and drives such as hunger or thirst or a desire for intimacy or even a desire for sexual intimacy are bad or wrong. What he is asking is, what are you driven by? What are you driven by? Are these desires and drives under the authority of Christ, or do they rule over you? It has to do with understanding who your authority is. This is why we've been talking about congregational authority and covenant and membership, is because at some point we have to ask ourselves, do I even submit to anyone? Do I submit to my brothers and sisters, to the leadership of the church I belong to? Because likely, if we don't, then there's something broken in our understanding of authority. God is a good God. In Genesis 1, what was painted, remember how many times it says, and it was good. 
What was painted was the idea that God is a good God, a provider of good things, and he's given us all that we ever have needed. When he saw something that was not good and that Adam was dwelling alone, he didn't go, well, suck it up, buddy. Right? It'd be a totally different Bible if that were in there, right? No, he acted for God's glory and for Adam's good. And that is why the sin of Adam and Eve is so blatantly horrific. It wasn't because they just broke the rule in that they ate of the tree. That wasn't the innate evil. It was the mistrust and the doubt of God's position as creator and provider that underlies the rebellion and disobedience. It was a rejection relationally of his place as God and their place as created beings. And it fell short of reflecting God's perfect nature and righteous character. And this is why sin is defined in the New City Catechism that we encourage you guys to use when you're catechizing your kids. It says this is the definition of sin. And I love it. Rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created. Rebelling against him by living without reference to him. Not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. I think often we speak that we are Christians, but we live as practical atheists. And in reality, if you live as a practical atheist, you're living as a practical Satanist. That's the message of what's being spoken here. Every human being falls under the condemnation and death sentence of sin. There is no way for anyone, anyone, myself included or you, to dismiss this announcement of the kingdom of darkness by saying, but I'm not that bad. It's not possible. And this is the bad news. Who wants to hear the good news? Praise God for his indescribable gift. For the good news is about to come. And Paul, in his wisdom and in his inspiration, he realizes that, man, I can do this for a couple of verses, but I probably should get back to the main point. But if we gloss past this too quickly, we will miss what Paul is about to spend the entire rest of the letter going into great detail about the kingdom that is present amongst us, the kingdom of light and how it looks, why it's here and what its citizens look like and how they act. Now, it will obviously take us a few more months to break all that down, going at the snail's pace we usually do. But Paul is kind to us here. While we can't just zoom through the rest of the letter right here and right now, Paul gives us an introductory statement that helps us to paint the context for the rest of the letter. In verses 4 through 7. Let's take a look there. Verses 4 through 7. He's painted the picture and announced the kingdom of darkness. And then he says two of the most glorious words in the human language. But God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now some of you might be saying, keep going Hans, we're getting to the best part. We'll get there next week, don't worry. (laughs) But we're just going to look at the preview here and what we see here is 
First we saw Paul's announcement of the kingdom of darkness. Now we see Paul's announcement of the kingdom of light. Paul's announcement of the kingdom of light. Now don't worry about scrambling down this graphic. It'll be online and we're, we're going to step back into it a little bit next week. But we see the difference between the two. Paul hasn't started telling us yet too much about the kingdom of light, but what we get is enough to start filling out our understanding. A lot of cases, it's going to be the exact opposite. We were dead in sin. We've been made alive with Christ. Uh, We were kids of disobedience. The citizens, as we'll see throughout Ephesians, of the kingdom of heaven are kids of obedience. And the rule is no longer worldliness and the desires and passions of the flesh, but it's mercy and love, grace and kindness. Because our ruler is the Christ, the anointed one, the son of Yahweh. And so in essence, he gives us a reflection of Yahweh, our creator. Without the words, but God, we would be left in the kingdom of darkness, dead in sin and trespasses, enslaved under the direction of our worldly sinful desires, following the rebellious paths of God's adversary. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, Brothers and sisters, this is God's righteous character. How often can we say we have the same motivation? In writing to the Philippians, he said, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Man, if I could say that this was my motivation, because of the great love with which I have loved you. That's the heart and the character of our God. That even though we, mankind, were oppressed and enslaved under our own sin and rebellion, he reached out to us a hand of salvation. Even though we were dead and a part of a kingdom that is contrary to him, God loved us while we were in that kingdom. Guys, this is what the phrase that we've used a lot recently called contra-conditional love means. We've talked about this a few times the last couple of weeks. But let me take a moment to break this down for you because this is so important in your understanding of who Jesus is. How do you define love? Generally, in our culture, we have defined it as a psychological feeling of goodwill. That is why we can say, I love pizza. I love our cat or our dog. Love my wife. I love God. Dallas and I have a joke that whenever we want to send each other goodwill because we're men and we don't like writing hearts to each other, we send little, the little emoticons of pieces of pizza, 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 as a joke about how we so easily throw out the word love to someone when we're not actually acting in love. In the theological terms of orthodoxy, the late theologian R.C. Sproul gave us a wonderful historical understanding of what that orthodox view of the love of God is. There are three kinds of love that the Bible describes, okay? And these three kinds of love, you're not going to go find these words actually in the text. These are words like Trinity, like rapture, that are used to describe something, okay? And I want to describe them for you because they're important to understand as you take the gospel to the people around you. The first kind of love that's described in the Bible is what's called God's benevolent love, benevolent love. This is God's good feeling towards all, including his enemies, 
This is where saying God is unconditionally loving is absolutely a correct statement. He is unconditionally loving in this sense. For example, he weeps at the damned and their eternal state. He wishes they would be saved, but he loves them even though they're enemies to the point where when they even die in that state, he will weep for them. When most people describe love, this is what they're referring to as God's unconditional love. It is a love that exists as goodwill towards anyone and anything he has created. You say benevolent love? There we go, benevolent love. The second type of love that's described in orthodoxy is God's beneficent love. Okay, This is not a word we use all that often, but beneficent love. And this means God's universal good actions towards all that he created. So this is not just the feeling, this is the action. The first one is the feeling, this is his unconditional loving action. In essence, he provides for all people. He provided rain and food. And we all have to go through the same problem, sometimes of drought or whatever, but he is giving all things to all people in a general, unconditional sense. But the third type of love is not unconditional. We have to understand this or else we miss the entire gospel and we misrepresent God. The third type of love is not unconditional. It is the type of love that exists in any loving relationship where there is mutual love, care, and respect. Makes this really clear when I ask a, a young single woman in our church, hey, do you want to get married to a jerk? Well, no. Well, why not? Aren't you an unconditionally loving Christian? That sounds kind of like a rough marriage. Whoa, wait a minute. You've got obligations on them? It's not okay to love them unconditionally? Well, no. Okay, well, let's talk about that for a second. What is that type of love? Well, the old school word for it is what's called complacent love. Now, this is not like our current word complacent, which means smugness or laziness. But the root of it in the Latin, it means to give someone else pleasure, to please. Complacent love. It is a love that takes pleasure in another. And while God has an unconditional goodwill of feeling towards his creation, God's complacent love is first and foremost in the beloved, his son. Let me say that again. God's complacent love is first and foremost in the beloved, his son, Jesus. That is why it is only in him, in Christ, that we can experience this complacent love. It is not something innately given to us outside of his beloved son, Jesus. It is only in Christ that we can experience this. And to be in Christ gives us room to make mistakes and yet be on a trajectory of growth that overall brings pleasure to God because we are reciprocating the love that he gave us. Not perfectly, but we're growing in ever-increasing fashion. To fully grasp the goodness of God, and the amazing mercy and grace he showed us. We must first understand that his love for us was contra-conditional. We had the first two pieces because that's for everybody. But we absolutely did not have and did not live in his complacent love because we were his enemies. We must first understand that his love for us was contra-conditional against the conditions of a loving reciprocal relationship. It was contrary to the conditions that exist in loving relationship while we were his enemies. He died for us. And he did this so that we might be welcomed into his son, so that we enter into his complacent love. If not in Christ, 
Let me say this again. If not in Christ, we cannot experience God's complacent love. To mischaracterize all of God's love as unconditional love, and guys, this has spoken to me just as much to you because I've used that phrase over the years a lot, to mischaracterize all of God's love as unconditional is potentially to mischaracterize God. R.C. Sproul said it this way, to announce to people indiscriminately that God loves them unconditionally without carefully distinguishing among the distinctive types of divine love is to promote a perilous, false sense of security in the hearers. Brothers and sisters, this is my statement to you. If God loves the sinner unconditionally, why should they ever repent? And why should they desire to grow in relationship? And why should they desire to be sanctified? I think by stating a mischaracterized gospel of unconditional love to the world, we have actually removed any need for obedience and sanctification. It was by God's contra-conditional love. And that while we were still sinners, God gave the sacrificial gift of his son, his beloved son, Jesus. And in so doing, he gave us a way to be forgiven of our sin. Through his death on the cross, he provided a sacrifice to pave the price for our sins. And he gave us a way to enter into the new covenant with him as we discussed two weeks ago. By accepting this sacrifice as given for you, confessing the sin in your life, turning from it in repentance, and declaring Jesus as your Lord, the Bible says you step into relationship with Christ and you are what the Bible calls saved. But at this juncture, we must be very careful. What do most Western Christians mean when they say, I am saved? They might mean saved from God's wrath for their sins. Is that a true definition of saved? Absolutely. Absolutely it is. They might mean saved from an eternity in hell away from God. Is this true? Absolutely. Absolutely. Praise God for that. Amen? Amen. These are both true and have been communicated throughout Scripture. But today, I want to ask, what is Paul communicating here specifically? Given the context that we've looked at already today, it seems to me that Paul is stating that we are also saved from one kingdom by being transferred into the other. This is the meaning of saved that he is using here. That we are transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. And because he is then our ruler, we are acting and living in Christ and therefore recipients of his love. Look at Ephesians 2, 6 through 7 again with me here. And he raised us up with him, Jesus, and seated us with him, remember he's on a throne, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Remember Christ means anointed king or anointed one. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. By placing us in Christ, we receive all that Christ receives. We receive the love of the Father rather than wrath. We possess victory over sin in the grave. We possess authority over the spiritual beings of the kingdom of darkness. 
We possess the promise of the future fullness of the restored kingdom of Shalom. And while we are still present in these mortal bodies in this present world, we are at the same time enrolled in the kingdom of heaven, according to the author of Hebrews. And we're present with him as his citizens, operating by his rule of love, mercy, grace, and kindness. We have been made alive with Christ. The only comparison I can think is when we as Americans go to another country where they drive on an opposite side of the road. Everyone knows that you are an American in those countries because you forget and you go to the wrong side of the road. That is how different and odd we should seem because of the rule that we live under. Not an oppressive rule. A loving, merciful, gracious, and kind rule that is actually what is better for us, that assists us in being who God created us to be. As Christians, we live in a paradox. We've been saved into the kingdom of light, and yet we exist in that kingdom amongst the kingdom of darkness, always looking forward to the full inbreaking of that same kingdom when Christ returns and steps on the neck of Satan. I look forward for that day. And so Paul will continue this thought process to break down for us what this means as citizens in the kingdom today and for the rest of the letter. He will describe for the church that we are indeed the kingdom of Christ inaugurated on this earth. And we get to live and look forward to the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness when this current age and kingdom is destroyed and the new age of God's full reign begins. Paul makes it clear that we are either going to be kids of disobedience or, as he will say in Ephesians 5.8, children of light. For at one time you were in darkness, he says, but to every Christian in this church today, he says, but now you are light in the Lord. This next phrase is a command. Read it with me. Walk as children of light. Walk as children of light. Paul makes it very clear that we are to be people of a different kingdom. We have been saved for that very purpose. And in so doing, in walking as citizens of a different kingdom, we will shine the light of Christ upon the world that we operate in. And so today is my point of application I have asked this many times in the last year, but as I've been finding in one-on-one meetings and small group gatherings, is that the Lord is slowly but surely by his Holy Spirit lifting our veil of blindness to this question. And I'm going to ask it yet again because so many people are starting to understand this. I want you to truly ask yourself today in application. Don't think about anybody else. Think about yourself. In which kingdom do I act Or you could say, live as a citizen. We might state that we are Christian. We might be part of a Christian subculture. We might have friends that are part of a Christian circle. But my question for you today is, do you speak things while at the same time living as a practical atheist? In Matthew 13, 38... Jesus gave us clarity on this understanding. He said, the field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. He uses that same phrase that Paul uses. The weeds are the sons of, notice the connection of the kingdom to the leader, the evil one. Who's that? 
Satan. Jesus was trying to tell us, guys, quite honestly, it's extremely hard to see who's who. Some look like wheat and some look like tares, but they look exactly the same, so you're going to miss out on who is who. And so we must ask the question of ourselves, which kingdom are we part of? Have we been brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light? And you might be sitting here, hopefully, asking, how do I know? Luckily, the word gives us an understanding of how to check. Paul said, examine yourselves. This was Paul writing to Corinth. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? What is this test he's talking about? Well, the theme that runs throughout Scripture is to test your fruit. Jesus said this in Matthew 7, 15 through 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their, what's that word? Not by their words, by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their, what's that word? Does the output of your life speak to being part of the kingdom of light or the kingdom of darkness? Now, let me be clear, guys, because I know some of you go this way in your mind. This is not saying we work for God's grace. God's grace was already given. That's why it's grace. It was free while you were yet an enemy in darkness. But by his salvation, he didn't leave you in that kingdom. He pulled you to the kingdom of light. And so I have seen in this church and in the word and just in life that there are really four areas, four heavy areas that we can use to test the fruit of our life. And this is what we bring up in membership interviews and we discuss with people. The first one is the fruit of our relationships. If we love God, we will love his people and make them a priority. And we've discussed this in depth over the last four weeks So rather than beating a dead horse again here today, you guys can go check those out online and listen to those last four teachings. But involved with this question is who do we submit to? What is the local body and the church leadership to whom we submit? Who are the people that you prioritize? Are they they citizens of the kingdom of light or the kingdom of darkness? Are those relationships in the kingdom of light deep, mutual submission engaged in the purposeful process of sanctification? Those are all things we covered over the last four weeks. We can know whether or not our life is in the kingdom of light based on our relationships. Secondly, often quoted, is the discussion about talents. Our talents and our giftings. Part of the fruit in our lives is that we will desire to use our gifts and talents to build up the body of Christ and draw others into his kingdom. Romans, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians all speak to the idea, and we're going to get into it in chapter 4, that we must use our gifts to build one another up and overall the kingdom of Christ. So you can ask yourself today, do you use your talents for God's kingdom or for your own? 
Is your energy expended towards success and upward mobility and the grasping after a comfortable life? Or is your energy prioritized and given always with the goal, wherever you are, of advancing his kingdom? Next is the test of time. What we give our time and our money to is what we value. When we prioritize our days, do we give time first to connect with Christ in prayer and the study of his word? Or do we wait to give him the last two minutes of the day as we fall asleep, really no energy left for him? That's why the Bible constantly talks about doing prayer and meditation and devotion in the morning. Because by giving him the first of your time, you're saying you are a priority, Lord. When we prioritize our weeks, is it Saturday and going to the beach or the mountains that is our highest priority? Or do we prioritize the one day in seven that he asks us for to speak to him that he is our priority? And lastly, treasures. Another word for finances. Jesus was quoted in Matthew and Luke as saying simply, read it out loud with me, guys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It is such an easy question to answer when somebody comes to me and says, man, my faith, I just feel like it's so dry. I feel like the Lord doesn't have my heart. You know what the first question I ask him is? is? You can guess. Go ahead, guess. What is it? Do you give to the kingdom of God? And in so doing, do you tithe to the local church of which you are a part? Jesus quoted this. He told us that where we spend our treasure, our heart will be there. You want your heart to be with Jesus, give to his kingdom more. If you look at your budget, you'll be able to answer this quickly. The Israelites called this the principle of giving your first fruits. Whatever was first in harvesting the crops always went to God and his kingdom. Because if you wait until prioritizing generosity... And using the money for the kingdom of God until the end of your budget, are you ever going to have any to give? No. Is it your first line item to give to the kingdom of heaven? To give to Christ first before the taxes, before the bills, before the savings, before the retirement, before the spending, is to clearly state, Christ, I want my heart to be with you, not at home in this world. Guys, the fruit of our lives relationships, talents, time, treasure. It helps us to see a test of where our citizenship lies. If you walk away today with this idea that Hans has beaten into us that we need to change our behavior in order to be Christians, you are not listening to me. These are tests that the Lord graciously gave us to see where our citizenship lies. And if we find that we come up wanting... Today is not the time for shame and self-condemnation. It is time simply for repentance and a change of desires and lifestyle. And as you follow with us through Ephesians, you will grow to understand this more and more. And next week, we will focus in so heavily on the fact that the gospel must be at the core of why you do what you do. That today, guys, if you don't know the gospel, the good news that Jesus has saved you, from the rebellion and sin in your life to bring you into his kingdom, to show you his love, you got to start there. It doesn't, you can check all the fruit you want. Your tree is rotting. You must start with the gospel truth. 
If you are a person who doesn't know Jesus or it's dawning on you as we go through this today that I have been calling myself a Christian, I grew up in a Christian home, but my life is a practical atheist life, I want to talk to you after service. Not to beat you up, not to condemn you, but to praise God for the realization that you want to step into his kingdom. And I'll be back there and I'll pray with you. I'll pray with you to accept the Lord as king and savior of your life and I'll walk you through what it is to be a disciple which is an ongoing relationship. But for those of us that have declared that we want Jesus to be our king, Paul knew that sometimes our feelings don't lead us to obedience. Let me say that again. Paul knew that sometimes, because we're still human, our feelings don't lead us to obedience. And that is why he commands certain activities. Paul knew that sometimes our heart feels like walking in obedience. And if we do have those moments, we should relish those and rejoice in those. But Paul also knew that sometimes we must act first in obedience to bring our hearts into alignment. How many of you as parents would say to your kids, you know, oh yeah, I know I I told you to go hug your sister, but just when you feel like it, eventually go do it. No, you know, and by instructing your child to go hug their sibling, their heart will grow towards them. This is why the Bible says pray for your enemies. Because when you actually engage in that work, slowly but surely you move from hatred all the way over to love and mercy and grace. The obedience actually is the work of the Holy Spirit bringing you into conviction of what it is to follow Christ. In acting as Christ would in obedience, oftentimes it changes our hearts to truly be his. So today, for those of you that have already professed Jesus as king, if your heart feels obedient, praise God. And I mean that. Praise God. If your heart doesn't feel like being obedient, my strong suggestion to you is practice obedience for a while. And I guarantee you, the Lord will change your heart through the process. If you have been practicing obedience and your heart hasn't begun the process of change and you're crying out, God, where are you? Why hasn't your Holy Spirit changed me? I want you to pause for a moment and ask yourself today, are you walking in obedience in your relationships, in your prioritization of talents and of time and of treasure, all for the kingdom of God? For all of us today, let us purpose as we worship and go to the tables of communion and give of our treasures in response to the love of God, that we would be a church known by our words, but also our actions as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. I believe that Paul was telling us in this text today, we are saved to be citizens of a different kingdom.